Welcome to episode 36 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. On today's episode, I welcome Chad Donahue to the show. Chad is an award-winning taxidermist with over 30 years of experience. In this episode, Chad and I discuss the qualities to look for in a reputable taxidermist, reasonable turnaround times, caring for deer capes, velvet antlers, selecting the best mannequin form for your trophy, and a whole lot more. I want to mention that I have a new heavy metal theme design available in t-shirt or hoodies. I'll put a link in the description if you want to pick one up and help support this channel. Lastly, I want to thank everyone listening for the continued support. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube or your favorite audio platform. And finally, I want to give a shout out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors for helping to make this podcast possible. Check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Stealth Outdoors just released a new jacket and shirt in their innovative smoke camo just in time for the 2023 season. While you're visiting Stealth Outdoors, don't forget to pick up some climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, or stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs this season. Stealth your mobile hunting setup by visiting www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and place an order today. And now, on to the podcast. All right, on today's show, I got Chad Donahue. Chad, I imagine... No one in my audience is probably familiar with you. I normally have hunters on, so give us a five-minute introduction. Who are you? What do you do? And how, when, and why did you first get into taxidermy? Well, I, uh, thanks for having me, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to talking to you, and it's cool to see you face-to-face on the screen. So yeah, thanks um, for joining. my name's Chad Donahue. What's that? I said, yeah, thanks for joining. Um, my name's Chad Donahue. Uh, I'm a taxidermist, uh, way out East in Michigan. Um, I'm not a full-time taxidermist right now. Uh, I'm also a school teacher, um, uh, bird hunter, dad, uh, kind of jack of all trades, uh, at this point, uh, in my life and, uh, uh got into taxidermy. Uh, I think I was in high school still was really interested in it. Um, my mother really never liked me getting into all the animals that we did. And, uh, my brother and I, we would, uh, man, we'd skin anything and, um, chop, you know, or cutting wings off of birds and just like trying to preserve things even when we were young. And it just kind of progressed from there. And, um, uh, Started the idea of having a business uh, shortly out of high school when I was still in college and just started to learn the trade. And um, now I'm, you know, it's, geez, probably almost 35 years later and still doing it. And it's still still what I love. It's still a great challenge. And uh, I love that part of it. I love the challenge of it. And I love the artisticness of it. Yeah, and you are a great artist. So Chad has done, uh, I think, only this deer mount here for me, but he's going to be my full-time taxidermist going forward and kind of what I want to get to next. So in my circle of friends, it's pretty well known that I've had my share of problems with shady taxidermist and having been involved in the business as long as you have 35 years. Uh, I'd like to hear from you. What are some qualities you think make a good taxidermist? And what about qualities, like if I'm a guy going to a taxidermist for the first time, what are some red flags? Um, I, I think probably one of the, one of the first things, uh, considering some of the stories is, um, to be honest, probably, I think that would probably be a good place to, 
um, to, to start, you're looking for a person that is going to be uh, honest with you and with what they can do and honest with you with your um, with whatever it is that you're bringing them. Um, too often we, uh, you know, we hear about guys that packed up and left or uh, they get their animal back and it wasn't the animal that they originally brought. And um, those are those are pretty sad stories. I know you and I have talked about it a lot of times. Um, tax, especially today, taxidermy is is not cheap. And uh, man, for for the amount of money that uh, a person's going to put towards a mount, um, man, I, you know, our goal is I just want to make sure that we're giving somebody back um, a great memory and a great piece of workmanship uh, that they can be proud of. I, I, there just can't be anything worse than being so excited about that bear or deer a duck or whatever, and then getting it back and having it look like it got drug under a car or who knows what happened to it. And you're all excited to show your buddies and, and then, you know, you're almost embarrassed to show your buddies and um, it's, you still spent the money, but yeah, you got a, a, a piece of art or a memory that's been, been harmed a little bit. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And it's uh, one of the reasons I'm so happy that you're doing my work now is because it comes through just talking to you. Uh, you send me pictures when you're working on my pieces, which is awesome. The communication's great. And it's it's been a totally different experience all around than what I've dealt with before. And you're right, it is a lot of money. But I feel like when you're getting that level of customer service and stuff and, and such a high quality finished product, um, it's something you're going to look at for a lifetime. Then then that's maybe one of the first points I'll make is just don't go to the, the cheapest guy, right? Because sometimes, not always, it's just like everything, but often you get what you pay for. And there's a reason that quality guys that are, that are real artists are charging more because they're spending the time on it and they're, you know, and they're good artists. They're not just an assembly line. So it makes a big difference. I saw, um, I saw, it was like a meme one time. It was a mechanic meme, but um, it was, it was saying something like, you know, that, uh, that five minute problem that you had is like one broken bolt away from being a, you know, a two day project. And I think that's true with, uh, taxidermists too. You know, there's, um, there's a lot of work that goes into those things and, um, you know, it, it does, it does take, it takes time to, to be able to do it right. Yeah. And it takes time. Well, the mechanics, great example too because you're developing a skill set over time right so i imagine every piece of work that you've worked on or, or a lot of them you've learned something new every time and those are lessons you carry forward into new pieces and and it shows you know the experience shows and it's hard to replace experience yeah no we uh i you know i'm a teacher so i'm uh, it, it probably goes without saying i'm addicted without saying i'm i'm addicted to learning you know, I want to learn new stuff every day. My students teach me uh, new things every day. And in the shop here, I'm learning stuff every day, too. Um, you know, the uh, every every state has its state uh, association uh, for taxidermists. And I know you were asking in the beginning, like, uh, uh, you know, where would be a good place to start for looking for a taxidermist? And that would be... Uh, 
that if it was me, that's where I would start because uh, anybody that's a member of that is already uh, saying that they're interested in learning more. You know, they any state organization is going to have, um, you know, meetings throughout the year. They always mix those meetings with little workshops and uh, opportunities to learn. Uh, you're going to have a state competition in every state. And um, those those are it's not just competition. Uh, those are opportunities to learn. And so I know uh, we haven't been able to compete in the last bunch of years because it's it's really difficult to compete when you're teaching and to be away like that. But um, when we used to compete um, before I started teaching, like that was the best part about it. You've got the best people in the world critiquing your work. And um, it, it's not just that you're competing and trying to beat someone. You're also there trying to learn. And uh, that was my favorite part is you're just like a sponge. You know, you can just absorb all that knowledge from other people and, you know, make those connections. And even here locally, you know, we don't, um, we don't have any animosity towards other taxidermists around, you know, there's a bunch of them that are near me. Um, and, um, I enjoy picking up anything I can learn from them too. Uh, that's a, I'll, I'll, I'll learn anything from anybody I can. Yeah. I have the same approach. That's part of the reason I like doing the podcast. I joke around and say, it's just an excuse for me to call all these great hunters and pick their brains and then take something away, hopefully for myself. So kind of a selfish endeavor, but it's, uh, it's great to be able to share that with other people that are interested in learning too. So it's a real good platform. Yeah. I love it too. Well, let's talk about something that I know there's not a one size, uh, fits all answer and that's turnaround time. So talk to me about turnaround time for quality work. I know that's going to vary by the shop and the number of employees, but talk to me, what do you think's reasonable? Uh, and maybe put that in the context of post COVID where I know some things are slowing down, some supplies are harder to get. And then maybe talk a little bit about the overall process and just using a deer example, like going to the tannery, um, you know, ordering the form, just kind of give an overview of the process and, and a reasonable turnaround time. Yeah. I, uh, the turnaround time is going to vary. I I'm a little different because we're only, you know, I'm, I'm teaching full time and we're only taking a limited amount um, per year. And so I know about how many hours I've got to devote to taxidermy during the summer when I'm off and over breaks and stuff like that. So we limit what we take. Our goal is to make sure that everybody's got their stuff back in a year. But even when we did it full time, you know, that was a pretty reasonable um, achievement, I think. And I think most modern places now are probably in that ballpark uh, somewhere. Um, you know, you hear horror stories about, um, you know, taking four years, five years, stuff like that. That, that seems like to me, that would be kind of a long time. Um, for me, it would be a long time because, um, I don't, it would be hard to run a business like that. Our costs, we're just like everybody else. Like a mechanic, like you said, a mechanic or, uh, uh, a builder or any of those uh, folks, uh, we've got materials we got to build or buy. And those, the, the prices of those materials are changing all of the time. And so if I were to take in a deer today that doesn't get completed until five years from now, um, whatever price I quoted that guy today, five years from now, it's, it's going to have to be higher. Uh, nothing's getting cheaper. It would be really hard to have a successful business model that way. You know, a year, 
year and a half out, uh, something like that, I, I think that's a little easier for us to predict, but it's always a challenge um, for us to do that. Um, time involved when they come, uh, you know, a lot of people are surprised. I know you talked about, like, I send pictures when we're working on it. You know, and I love that because I like to text you, you know, for you, it's like four in the morning or whatever. But yeah. I'm like, hey, uh, we're starting on your stuff. And a lot of people I'll send pictures throughout the day so you can see. And I enjoy sharing that with uh, the folks that we work for. And uh, you can see how it goes. And a lot of guys comment that it's a lot faster than they thought. Um, but mostly what taxidermy is, is you're just waiting your turn. The taxidermist isn't... Uh, it, it doesn't take months or years for them to work on your stuff. It takes months or a year to get your stuff back and get all the materials ready. And the, the number one challenge of that is the tannery. Um, the, the tannery is going to take, if it's a good tannery, you're looking at six to eight months probably for a return time for a deer. So for a tax thermos, like we're getting ready to send uh, our first stuff out next week, uh, the first load to the tannery. And uh, I won't see that stuff now until, you know, it'll be April, probably April or May before I'll even it'll even be here where we can do anything to us. That's a long wait um, to get that. And uh, um, that takes a lot of takes a lot of time uh, to do that. As far as the deer go, um, you know, I think most guys are doing probably a couple of day anyways, depending on what their setup is. And uh, once it gets here and the form's here and it's all tanned and you can get going, then um, it's it goes uh, pretty quickly then. Yeah. So talk about maybe, and I'm familiar with it because uh, I have a friend that does it. And now talking to you, you've been, like I said, real good at communicating. Talk about maybe the assembly where, you know, you're putting the paste on, you're putting the hide on, the eyes, and then you got to let it dry down for a while. And then you, you do the finish work, right? Like you, you got to have a break in there too, right? That takes a little while. Yeah, um, it's nice to have things dry. Like I don't, I don't know if you want to start like right at the be beginning, coming in raw. Sure. Um, you know that's probably where most of the challenges are. Um, you know, and that's when we talked about being honest in the beginning. I think that's a good spot. I I can't remember with you specifically, but um, you know we have a mutual friend that likes to shoot giant holes and things. <laughs> and um some, sometimes like you just i just have to say like man i don't think this is worth the money like this is a huge gaping hole um <laughs> it's almost cut in two or you know something like that so you know this might not be the one unless it really means a lot to you to you know to do it like ultimately when we're done it i want it to be something that you're really proud of and if it's something that's looking a little frankensteinish or there's something in there to distract from what the animal would have looked like alive you know i think it's good for you know to get some actual feedback uh that's honest about this is this is good or it's not or maybe you're hide slipping it it was too warm uh and uh your the hair's coming out and we're not going to be able to do anything with this maybe we can do something else um i think that that kind of feedback is, is important to prevent some disappointment or, you know, unfortunate um, misunderstandings later on. But when those, when those deer come in, um, we've got to get them all apart. 
And um, it's interesting. I'm teaching anatomy right now uh, at school. My, my students work on uh, preserved cats. And so uh, this week they've been skinning cats. Um, and uh, it's been it's interesting to watch because I can see some of the things that they do that I just want to jump right in and help them. Uh, but I have to kind of let them work through it, but I can see the same mistakes that they make with their cat that a lot of the guys will with their capes when they're bringing them in. Uh, they cut the ears off too far out. Uh, they cut big holes in the eyes or in the tear duct area. They cut the nose too soon or don't give a lip or, um, something like that. So I, you know, for any of the, the guys that are, you know, maybe never had anything done, you know, a great thing to do would be just to drop into the taxidermist and just ask them, um, you know, maybe how to do it. Uh, we, a lot of times when guys are traveling, we give them uh, a little toolkit so that when they go, they've got um, some more detailed tools to use um, as opposed to, you know, a big buck knife or something. It's going to be kind of hard to skin around the deer's eye with a, with a buck knife, you know, and you might not have anything else. Um, you know, and your, your car keys aren't going to work very good. So they, uh, um, you know, something like that would be a, a good first step to make sure that you're getting stuff there in good condition. And uh, that's going to be the first step to having something that's really, um, you know, really nice. You know, like for you with your antelope and stuff, I mean, it's hot when you guys are, um, you know, when you're hunting those, we've got a youth season deer here in Michigan where a lot of times it's in the eighties on that weekend. And a lot of guys just don't realize how quick that stuff can go bad. Um, but even, um, a, a warm October day can be, um, can be, you know, can be detrimental to a hide. So it's definitely yeah. something to think about. And that's one of the questions I had that I want to get to. And that, I mean, we're talking about it now, so let's just talk about it now. Let's say it is an early season deer. It's uh 80 degrees out what's a reasonable time frame like to, to be sure it's good how long in hours do you have to get that cape off and i know like for myself a lot of times i'm not super comfortable caping the face so i'll cape the body of the deer up to the neck and then cut the head off but i know um just from experience now even leaving that meat on the head can ruin the cape so how long do you have on an 80 degree day um to make sure it's good to get that cape off the deer yeah, I'm not. Um, one of the things I always tell customers is, is like a gallon of milk. Uh, how long do you want to leave a gallon of milk sitting out and still drink it? Um, you know, maybe a half day with in 80, 85 degrees in the sun. Uh, the shade makes a big difference. Um, you know, by by the next day at 85 degrees, I don't I'm not sure about what you're <laughs> what your level of uh gastronomy is but i'm, I'm probably going to pass on milk that's been sitting out for 24 hours it's gonna uh, might be a little much but that would be a good uh comparison you know like okay. to put something in in somebody's mind but it, it uh, the other thing that has a big impact is uh direct sunlight uh the mass of the animal uh and then whether it's wet or not so um, direct sunlight is just going to heat that up and it's going to keep the heat from dissipating off of the carcass, you know, and that carcass is warm. And I'm sure you've had that experience before where, um, you know, you, you didn't find a deer right away and you get up there and one side of the deer is pretty good, but the side that was laying on the ground that was insulated, you know, that goes bad. 
you know, that mass has held the heat there and it lets bacteria get going in that hide. And um, once they start, it's really hard to, um, to get them to stop. So probably the most important thing to do is just, uh, you know, make the mass smaller so that it can, uh, you know, cool down. I, I don't really know what the body temperature of a deer is, but it's got to be 100 degrees or something, you know, like a dog is. So um, even if you can get that stripped down and it's 80, you just save 20 degrees. That's going to save you. Um, you know, that's going to save you some time, you know, lay it out, let it cool in the shade, in the breeze. Um, you know, just try to get it off of that animal as, as, as soon as you can. So you can start the process of getting it, uh, cooled down would probably be the biggest thing. Uh, bullet wounds, any moisture, you know, especially, uh, you know, stomach fluids or any digestive fluids, those are going to really jumpstart bacterial action in the hair. And, um, you know, that blood, you can dry that off as best you can. Um, a lot of guys, uh, what we've seen, especially during rifle season, which is a problem is they go to the, um, they go to the, to the butcher or the processor and he's got a bunch of them to do. And so they are caping and skinning those deers out, deer out. And then they're, they've got to keep their shop clean and they're spraying that down with the hose a lot. A lot of times you get a lot of overspray on capes and stuff that can make them go bad really quickly. We get a lot of wet ones in like that. And as soon as it's wet, you know, that's a jump start for your bacteria too. So, you know, I, uh, 85 degrees, uh, leave it all together. Uh, it's raining and, or it gets wet in a Creek or something like that. You really don't have, um, a ton of time you're going to have to really get after it if you want to save that hide i think okay so just to summarize what i think i heard you say is get the cape off as soon as possible keep it out of direct sunlight keep it dry is that a good summary i think that's a great summary yep fast yeah. as you can oh great tips appreciate and, that and some of it is limited you know like for you guys where you're way out you know in michigan it's not such a big deal but uh for you guys a lot of times you're way out and I think you just got to do the best that you can do and be, be conscientious of it, especially if it's someone going out to like to going out to hunt with you. Like, this is my dream is to come out and kill a, you know, a high plains, uh, mule deer. Uh, you know, that's a life goal. Um, you want to be prepared, you know, to, to make the most of, uh, what you end up with so that you can bring it back and preserve it. Cause a lot of people, that's a big part of going on a trip like that is they want to have that in their house to be able to show it off and a little bit of planning ahead of time to make sure that you can make the best of whatever situation you're in, I think would be tremendously beneficial for you, the mount and your taxidermist probably. Yeah. And while we're talking about preparation, one of the things that I do and it costs a couple of bucks, but to me it's, it's worth the uh, insurance is, Every time I go out early season, like you said, if I'm antelope hunting early deer when it's 70, 80, 90 degrees, I keep the cooler on the back of my truck and I fill it up with ice every time I leave. And then I usually take uh, one or two contractor bags. So if I get an animal, I quarter it up right away. I, if I'm going to taxidermy it, I cape it out. I put the meat in game bags, put them on ice in the cooler. And then so I don't get the hide all over the meat, I'll put the hide in a contractor bag, but I can also put it in the cooler that way. And usually I'll let it air out, like you said, in the shade, maybe an hour that cools it down to whatever the ambient temperature is. So that, like you said, you might go from hundred to 70 degrees and then put it on ice. Yeah. And, and I haven't had any issues doing that. 
No, you're exactly the kind of guy taxidermist loves. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, like you said, you want to keep it. You don't want to. You don't want to slip and hide or whatever. So, um, yeah. Let, let's talk about removing a deer from the field. So, Michigan specifically, out here, a lot of guys quarter it up. In Michigan, a lot of guys drag their deer out. So, are there any potential issues with dragging a deer potentially damaging the cape? And if so, are there any ways that you're aware of to either eliminate or minimize the risk associated with dragging a deer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably if, if it's a buck, uh, you know, attaching to the antlers is a lot better than, uh, than around the neck. Um, and, um, putting that rope or, and this is true for hanging them also. So a lot of, uh, some of the guys will hang them by the neck, uh, in the garage for a while, especially here. It's cool, you know, during rifle season in Michigan. So they'll have them hanging, but what happens is, is that that rope will break hairs. It's not uh, really going to harm the, the hide or anything, but um, those hairs break. And those hairs are really difficult to, um, to get to not show that rope mark. So you could have a beautiful cape and a, a beautiful animal that's been uh, in, in great shape, but then you've got this ring of broken hairs around its uh, neck. It's really difficult to for a taxidermist to to get rid of those uh, for you. So we like to hang them by the antlers, um, or pull them by the antlers. Uh, we had a fellow uh, that was hunting in Kansas, and they had killed a nice buck, and then um, uh, drug it back with a, a four wheeler. I'm not sure how far, but it, it may have been down a gravel road, or I, I'm not really. I'm not really sure what like happened to that poor thing, but by the time they brought it, um, there was a lot of the one side was gone and they were really surprised. Like they're like, well, you know, you can't do anything with that. Well, man, that bugger's just about naked, you know, yeah. uh, on that side. And, you know, it's just like some little things like that, just a little bit of forethought, like throw him up on the, the back of the four wheeler instead of uh, dragging him that way. Um, same thing if you had to go, if you had to cross a Creek, if there's any way to keep that thing from getting wet when you're dragging across or a swamp or something like that, try to keep it dry. I've seen things where they, they look like a little kid sled. Like we would have had when we were kids or like a roll up piece of plastic and you can put them on a deer to make them slide easier. You know, those would be good too, to just protect that, um, that hide. In Michigan, I don't think we have very much trouble. It's not been very often I've had trouble with them being uh, how they were uh, brought in, but it does seem to be a bigger thing out west. Like when we're doing deer from out west, I think the I think the your soil out there is probably a lot harsher. It's rockier, more shale, and uh, stuff like that. I think it's a lot sharper edges, and uh, it really can be rough on on those animals when you're dragging them. So. Yeah, and the reason uh, I, ask, I would not drag. Yeah, and the reason I ask. Go quick, ahead. Quick anecdote here. So the first time I hunted in Montana was with a friend in 2017. I was a non-resident, so I had non-resident tag, and my friend ended up shooting a mule deer, and we were very ill-prepared. We had our small like day packs, not our meat packs. We didn't have uh, game bags. We we did add knives, so we were able to to gut the deer. A long story short, we ended up dragging this deer a little over two miles, which sounds ridiculous but but that's the honest distance we drug it you know we had the onyx measured out and like you said rockier soil and a lot of sage and we actually drug the hide off the one hind quarter we left and, and we didn't realize it at the time but we left 
the one side down the whole time that we drug it for two miles and we got back and the skin was still there but the hair was all gone so i mean you could definitely damage the cave dragon and uh, especially in in rougher soil like you said Uh, nobody ever means to do anything like that but you're excited you want to get done you're trying to get it back and um you know some of those are just some like heartbreaking uh, you know, I, I, we've had, co- you know, clients that went out, they, they tell me before they're going, we're going for, uh, you know, a mule deer out west or an elk out west. And I mean, it's their dream to do it. And then somewhere in the process, you know, they're, they're dragging it with a truck down the gravel road back to camp or whatever. And then it gets here and you're like, you know, and there are some things that we can do. But, you know, we talked about costs, too. Um you know, what cost is one thing, but like when you get to a point where you really can't salvage some of those things or, you know, salvage a shoulder, there's always different posing we can do to try to help with things like that. But there are some of them that it's heartbreaking. You know, they come in and you're like, man, the, 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 the hair is falling right out of this thing. Like I, I really, you know, I'll try it if you want me to, but you got to, you know, realize that if it comes back, you know, naked from the tannery um uh, like there's not a lot we can do and and that that is that's i always feel bad about that and you feel like the bad guy because you're sharing that information but it's important to i feel like it's important to share that with a guy because man that would be (laughs) be rough to get that back and have one side be naked you know and yeah um that'd be devastating you gotta look at that for forever and that's why I wanted to talk to you and, you know, get some of this information out there. I mean, I know there's some good resources already, but people that listen to the show, some of these things aren't things you necessarily think about, especially if it's the first deer or first animal you're going to take to a taxidermist. These things aren't the top of your mind. So it's, it's good information to get out there. Yeah. Well, I can tell you whoever the, ta- whoever their taxidermist is, that's what keeps them up at night. <laughs> sure. <laughs> your sure. taxidermist is thinking about it all the time. <laughs> And it's funny because, you know, we talk about the capes like that and it's, I don't, I can't, I don't know if you and I have had that experience, but, um, we'll have, uh, we'll have all of them on the wall in here and the guys would be coming to pick them up and they'll, they'll be like, well, you know, um, mine's the one that's an eight point or the 10 point or whatever. And as a taxidermist, I have no idea what their antlers are, um, uh, you know, those sit in a, you know, we have a secure spot that we keep them all locked up uh, all the time so that they're safe. Um, but what your taxidermist is dealing with is that Kate. And I can tell you, you know, we had that, we were just talking about that with uh, your your mule deer, you and Jake's mule deer, like how different those two capes look. Yeah. And uh, the tax, your taxidermist is really in tune to what those deer um, look like. And I've, I've learned over the years for sure, like when you see, you know, from the road, you see deer and you think they all look the same. But when you put them on the wall in here, even without their antlers, I could tell you who everybody's deer is just by what their faces look like. The patterns on their faces and the coloring on their faces, every one of those deer, if it wa- I like if I was another deer and the, at any time of the year, I'd be able to tell, well, there's Joe and there's Sally and there's whoever because when you learn to when you learn how to look at them it's shocking how different all of their 
faces and patterns and colorations are. And I love that about them. And we try to enhance that on some of them. Yeah, no, it's, it's cool. And I've got a deer. It's not, it's not in here, but I got another deer mounted where it doesn't have a throat patch, you know, and it's super common. Right. Just got a dark, you know, brown spot. There's no white there. Uh, and sometimes they've got, you know, it's really, it's not up here in Michigan anyways, it's not common. Sometimes they've got two right. spot throat patches. And uh, we've had a couple of times where they've had three. That's a pretty cool looking animal. We had uh, one, it was a youth season deer that just came in last week. And that deer, um, we, I actually called the fella and we are kind of going to revamp what we're going to do with that uh, deer as far as posing wise. But um, it has a black stripe from between its ears all the way its whole body that's probably um, up on its neck. It's probably three inches wide, but down across its shoulder and its back, uh, it's probably six inches wide. Uh, uh, I've only ever seen one like that before, and it's just such an unusual cape and such a cool looking thing that we're going to try to do the positioning a little bit just to be able to show that off. Cause it'd be a shame just to uh, have it hanging and not be able to see that part of the story because it's so unusual. Yeah. I won't say his last name, but I'm pretty sure that's Kevin's daughter's deer, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, I saw that on Facebook. That is a very unique Cape and especially that short early season Cape like that. That's a, a really cool looking deer. Oh, uh, we're so excited to work on that. We're going to try to do something cool to really enhance that. Um, and that, that's the best part about doing this work, you know, um, is, um, it is trying to show that animal in, in its best light, you know, that's a unique animal. And so, man, why not show that, um, you know, his daughter will have that hanging in her house her her whole life, probably, yeah. and always say, you know, um, that's my first deer. And, and not only is it her first deer, but um, uh, it's such a unique animal. It's just really cool to celebrate the uniqueness of that animal um, for for always. Because every person from once we get that thing done and it's hanging, every person is going to comment on that thing's strike. Because I mean, how many times have you ever seen that? You know, it's really cool. Yeah, super cool. I want to take a minute to mention huntingbeastgear.com, co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault. Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products, including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast Gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, including the fastening strap. HuntingBeastGear.com has also released the game-changing Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution, with over four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear Stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear Stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, back to the podcast. So, speaking of youth season, today is the uh, 26th of September. We're probably, for the most part of the country, well past having to worry about velvet. 
But I know every year from the youth season or guys that go out of state and hunt early openers like Montana, like Nebraska, North Dakota, uh, three-part question here. So if you need me to repeat any, let me know. But first one, describe <laughs> the best practices for handling a velvet deer in the field. Let's just go one at a time. What What's your best practices? So I shoot a velvet deer September 1st, and I got it down. I know it's a lot more sensitive. What do I do? What helps the taxidermist out to, to get it there in the best shape possible? Yeah, gentle. Okay. <laughs> gentle would be the the word uh the word for that. No matter what stage of velvet it is, that velvet is uh fragile. And um we've got you've got to be really careful of it. It's a lot more prone to any kind of scratch. Like we we're talking about rocks and shale and stuff like that. Like um it's a lot more sensitive to any um nicks and abrasions and stuff like that so if you want to preserve that velvet the very first step is going to be handling that deer differently because you know most of the time you're going to go right up you kill that deer you're going to go right up grab them antlers drag it around a little bit by the antlers but if it's got velvet on there it's very possible depending on what stage of development those antlers are at or you're getting to the end you could grab a hold of those antlers and pull and just take the whole you know a big chunk uh right off with you there's a lot of blood in those antlers even when they're getting close to coming off it's a lot of fluid and a lot of blood and there's not a lot of tissue there it's right near right under the surface and i i don't know but bacteria uh you know if you could ask them what their favorite meal is they'd be like yeah the armpit of a deer you know the ear hair or something like that but they'd be like man best thing for a bacteria is velvet antlers man we'd love to you know ruin those <laughs> and uh, so again really quick uh getting them apart we had a little trouble here because we had some velvet antler deer coming in and the guys a lot of times just want to bring them and get them here fast yeah. so that we can get them uh taken care of that's a that's a good idea um and then we're we're really careful with them too get them cold and get them froze, uh, as, as quick as you, as quick as you can. Um, the one thing, other thing I'd throw onto that probably is, you know, for depending on where you are, I don't, I, I don't really know how it goes in Montana, but here in Michigan, when our guys from Michigan are going out to see you, for example, they can't bring the whole skull back. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't come into the state with, with an intact skull of a, of a, deer outside of the state so um you're gonna have to if you have velvet antlers you're gonna have to strip that down ahead of time and uh, i would just do that as as best as you can if you if that's a possibility i'd say talk to your taxidermist um see if you can get some tips from them about skinning around those and um when you cut them in two make kind of a uh like a v-shape that helps us out quite a bit too because the, the best way to, tra it's going to be really hard to transport them, especially if it's a big set of antlers, to, to transport them intact. And so uh, it's it helps a lot for storage and just keeping them from getting beat up. Just uh, um, to split those two antlers right down the center of the skull, but just do it in kind of a V-shape. So that way there's only one way for those antlers to go back uh, together. If you cut it straight, um, we can put it, any tax firmness is going to be able to put it back together, but it's a little more frustrating for us. But if you put that V-shape in there, that V-shape cut, there's really only one way for those things to go back together. And that really helps us a lot also.
So that's news to me. Are you talking about cutting the actual skull plate in half? Yeah. So you would cut your regular skull plate off just like you normally would do with an antler deer. But right in between the antlers, you're going to make a cut. But instead of making a cut that's right straight down the middle so that it's a nice straight line, which you might think was better. This is true of even antler deer, too. Like if you had to fly on a plane or something and you needed to make those, uh, you know, make the package smaller instead of a giant set of antlers. Um, when you split that skull, uh, just put instead of going straight, just uh, start in from the front on an angle and then start in on the back on an angle, make a V meet about in the middle where the antlers are. And that will that helps your taxidermist quite a bit, too. Okay. And the one caveat, I'm not, not trying to disagree with you, but just if, in case people do have a trophy deer that they ever want to have entered in the record. Book, well, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't. If you're going to score it, don't do that. Yeah. Don't cut your skull plate in half. If you don't care about Pope and Young or Boone and Crockett, then cut it in half. But if you do, yeah, don't do that because then that disqualifies you from, from getting in the books. Yeah. If I get hate mail for that one, I'm going to, I'm going to blame it on you. Hey, we clarified. I think we shouldn't get any hate mail. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that would absolutely be true. You know, but the truth is, um, I, you know, um, most of the deer that we're doing in a, in a year are, we're not real worried about them being record book uh, animals. It's a guy that's, it means a lot to the guy, but, um, or the gal, but uh, it's not, uh, it's not something that's going to be um, contested or anything, but, but you're absolutely right. Boy, if you got a, if you got a monster, boy, do not, do not split that. Cause then you're all done. Right. I mean, that's the end of it. Yeah. Yep. So one other question I had, uh, you answered one of them. So we're going to skip that one. Another one I had about talking about velvet was you talked about some of the extra work that goes into that and extra work means extra money. So in your opinion, I'm, and this is going to vary by locality, right? I'm not asking for an exact number, but what should a guy expect to pay extra for a shoulder mount when he's dealing with a velvet deer? Is that a hundred dollars, 200, 500? Like what's that look like? Um, I, a couple hundred dollars probably. Um, but it, it's going to depend on uh, how a person is going to deal with it. There's several different ways to deal with, um, with that velvet, uh, um, I, I, I don't think any taxidermist, I guess I don't know, but I'll do my opinion. So my opinion is best method to preserve those, that velvet is freeze dry. And, um, the, the freeze drying process costs some money and probably just as much, uh, is the, you know, the shipping or the handling and stuff of the of those antlers to get them to the uh, freeze dryer. We don't have a freeze dry system in the in house here. We're just we're just a you know we're like a craft brew place. You know we're not sure, sure. we're not a, a big operation here. It's it's this is a small place. So boutique taxidermy. Um, you know what's that? I said boutique taxidermy. Yeah, that that's probably a good description of it. So um, we're gonna have to ship out for a freeze dry uh, opportunity like that. And, um, once it's freeze dried, that, that thing's, it's not going to change. You know, they're, they're, they're going to put chemicals into it. They're going to, um, drain the blood out of it, whatever needs to, um, come out of it. And then once it goes through that freeze dry process, it's just like an MRE or, uh, anything like that. I mean, that's, you know, you could 
bury that and in the basement and be good to eat, you know, 200 years from now or whatever. So uh, that's our preferred uh, method uh, to do it. There are some other ways with some chemicals and injection and stuff. Uh, I have done those uh, when I was younger, but at this, at this stage for me, um, you know, if you, if you bring me a, a, a velvet antler deer, I'm going to, I'm going to convince you to go with freeze dry. And, um, and that's really no, you know, for us, it's a little bit different, but you know, we're, we're basically going to, we're going to charge you pretty much what we get charged. You know, we're, it's just a, a process of having to get done. There might be a little bit of, um, time involved for shipping it and getting it back, but. Um, it's really important to make sure that that velvet is going to stay stable for forever. Um, and that's the only way I know of right now to, to be able to, to do that. And that's kind of an industry standard for sure. Okay. No, that's good to know. Cause, uh, I've heard of some in other interesting ways that I won't mention because I don't want to steer anybody. Oh, I've heard of some weird. I've done, yeah. Well, and when I didn't know any better when I was younger, um, I did some, I did stuff that didn't work, you know, and, um, you know, I, you know, stuff like that still, you know, that still would bother, you know, bother me today. Uh, we're, there's no way we're putting anything out of here like that. You know, we were talking about how long stuff will last because, you know, I, um, I'm a little bit older than you are, but, um, you know, when I was a kid, you'd have all these old mounts, you'd be in a barn or a garage and, You'd see, uh, you know, the mouth's falling apart and the eyes are falling out and the ear, you know, like the hair's falling out of them. There's like all these horrible things, um, you know, just because back then they didn't have the technologies that we have today to preserve these animals. You know, like that one, you know, I can see that one right off your ear there that we did. It's one of my favorite ones that we've that we've done recently. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love that uh, mount. And uh uh, that thing's going to be good for forever. I'll be dead. You'll be dead. Uh, you know, it'd be little, little grandkid Gillespie's running around <laughs> and, uh, they'll be like, that's grandpa's, that's grandpa's deer. They, the technologies and the methods that we're using today, I, I, I did, I really, it's, uh, it's, I don't, I mean, they are going to really, really last a long time. Like, way past our lifetimes uh if they're handled um you know done properly and that's pretty cool i think super cool. so when we're talking about velvet antlers i need my velvet to last just as long as as that mount is and um and so that's that's for me that's the balance i'm going to try to talk the fella into doing freeze dry um i just i feel like that'll be the most durable method for the long term so you know, baby Gillespie can see grandpa's velvet mule deer or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> um, let, let's talk about getting the actual cape off the deer. And for, for your answer here, assume this is the first time a guy's done it right. And he's going to do it himself. So where do you cut? And I think from what I've seen or heard, not from you directly, but just in general, seems like one of the common mistakes is to cut the cape too short. So where do I make my cuts on the deer? Um, when I'm removing the cape and let's talk like in terms of the body from the front shoulder to the hind quarter, where should I make that circumference cut around the deer to ensure that it's long enough, especially like a pedestal mount, right? That takes more cape. So if I'm going to consider a pedestal mount, I probably want to cut it a little longer. Give me your take. Like, is there, is there such a thing as too long? 
No, no. So I, I would say uh, probably uh, if you have any doubt, just leave the whole thing on there. Let your taxidermist handle that. Just, uh, you know, skin it, you know, it's hanging upside down. So you're going to uh, skin that thing down. Um, just give your taxidermist the whole, uh, the whole thing would be my suggestion. The, the, just like you said, the, the trend in the last um, that last decade for sure is more and more shoulder showing on uh, mounts. You know, back when I started, there was hardly I, even like what we would, you know, like the, the length of brisket we would get to, you know, like if I got that length of brisket today, I'd be horrified because I, you know, <laughs> we'd be like, man, it's going to be a little tiny mount. But back then there, there wasn't a lot of brisket shown and um, not a lot of shoulder shown. And, uh, Today, though, um, the, the, the trend is definitely lots more shoulder, lots more back, and that all takes a lot of cape. And I, I don't probably think the average guy might realize or gal would, would realize how much hide they really need there. You're better off just to skin that whole thing down, just give the whole thing to your um, taxidermist. Yeah. Um, as far as the cuts, uh, when it's uh, – you know, up around that brisket, which is always a problem, is uh, the way that I always tell the guys when or whoever calls is when it's hanging up, most of them are hanging upside down when they're working on them. Uh, or if it's an elk and it's laying on its side, you can cut those front legs off at the knee or whatever it is that you're going to do. Right on the back of a, of a deer's front leg, where uh, there's a little bit longer hair there and the white from the inside meets and forms a line with the brown on the front. And um, that's a good line to, to take up on the leg. If they're hanging upside down in a garage or in a situation like that, those its belly is facing you and its two front legs are facing you, the, that line is right where you can see it really easily. The white on the inside of the leg and the brown on the out, and it makes a perfect target for you to follow with your knife. So you can just slide that knife right along that line until you get to the armpit. And then the most important thing there that I tell everybody is um, it seems like once they get to the armpit, they want to make a hard right turn and go over towards the center line of the animal. And you don't want to do that. You want to go up. So when it's hanging upside down, go to the armpit. Instead of making a right turn and going crossways, just go up. And uh, you can give, uh, you can still follow that brown and white line right up and then just kind of eventually angle over to whatever cut you made for gutting it. And then you're just staying away from that whole chest area. Um, because if you're getting more shoulder on the deer mount, you're also getting a lot more brisket on the, on the mount. You know, we've got, you know, I've got you and Jake's is sitting here in the shop right now. And geez, there's probably, you know, there's probably 10 inches of worth of brisket on that uh, mount. That's a, that's a long ways back, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, your average person might not, might not realize they need that much. There's no sense limiting, you know, your, your taxidermist will never be mad if you bring more than, than less. Um, they, they won't mind at all. Yeah. And what I've started doing, because we're doing so many of the deer in the field because we're packing them out, uh, the example that you gave following the line is great. 
And then when I get to what's the armpit, like you said, instead of making a hard cut down to the brisket, I go almost parallel to the body then. So for, let's say you're looking at, you know, a deer on its side and there's the midline of the, the very bottom of the belly. I'm probably eight inches to a foot above that. And I cut from the armpit straight across and, oh yeah, and I actually go back now. So I do make a little cut at the brisket, right? Where the, like the sternum of the deer would be. But when I cape in one that I know I'm going to mount, I go back from there, like even six inches to make the circumference cut around the body. And I've been leaving them and, and you're probably glad, but, but I learned this because I cut one too short. I, if you're looking from the front shoulder to the hind quarter, I go like three quarters of the way back. I make the cape super long because then who knows what you might want to do with it, whether it's a shoulder mount or half body mount, whatever you don't limit yourself that way. I mean, other than maybe a full body mount, but I'm not doing any of those. No, I agree. I, um, that, that's why, you know, that's why I want to send you Valentine's, uh, you know, <laughs> every year is be, you know, it, cause it's a two, it's a two way street, right. For a taxidermist. Um, you, you know, I, uh, a taxidermist, you want to work with somebody that, uh, is going to help you a little bit, you know, that, that means a lot that puts you on the A list of stuff that's, that's going to happen around there. And, uh, that that makes a big difference. You know, it's a you know, that's a relationship between the two of you. And, um, you know, that's it's all that is very appreciated because, um, you know, you're just assuming that whoever the tax firmist is, they, they want to do a good job for you. You know, they want to make sure that that animal looks as good as it can possibly look. And when you like you say, you start to limit things like you don't have enough of that brisket or enough of that shoulder. Um, that, uh, that, those are hard conversations to have when it didn't have to happen. There was no reason to cut it off. You could have just left it. And, um, the bottom line is, is pretty much no matter what you do to it, as long as you aren't throwing chunks over your shoulder into the woods, uh, and you bring the whole thing, uh, we can put it back together. Uh, I've got a bear that came in yesterday that was caped really roughly. And, um, I takes a little bit of searching around, but you can find that piece that, <laughs> you know, that's got to be brought back up there. And as long as the piece doesn't get chunked off and thrown in the woods, then uh, we can put that back in there and uh, put it right where it was. And, you know, these days, pretty, you know, anybody's going to be able to um, do that in a, in a way that's not looking awkward or anything. Sure. Sure. And, and I think, and part of the reason I want to bring it up, especially like the Cape length is um, looking back to myself, like the first deer that I wanted to get mounted, I didn't know any of this stuff, right? Luckily I was in Michigan. I was able to take the deer. Uh, I don't know if you know Troy Harrison, but I don't even know if he's doing taxidermy anymore, but he's a younger guy, probably even maybe a year or two younger than me. And at the time he was quite a bit younger. So he was probably early thirties. Anyways, he did them and he was able to cape the deer out for me. So I didn't have to do that. But when I started doing my own, the first one I cut too short and the guy's like, Hey, you got to cut these longer. So it, but my whole point is sometimes you don't know until you know, and that's kind of, again, why I'm doing this podcast is there's a lot of little tips after you've done three, four, five, or 10 of your own. And, and obviously you with 35 years of experience, like there's things you can do to, to help it out up front to get a much better result. Oh, I, 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 and that's why I love doing something like this is just to be able to, um, you know, get the, get the word out. Some other, I'll be getting Valentine cards from other taxidermists just be, you know, like, yeah. man, that was, <laughs> you know, like that, you know, I, we appreciate it. Cause that deer, you know, that deer comes in, in a lot better shape. And I, nobody, 
I, I think most people just don't think about any of those things. And, uh, and, and some of those things um, are pretty important. It'd be just like a builder for your house. You know, you don't think about how that house is framed up, but your builder is, and <laughs> he's doing a lot of things out there. You don't have any idea what he's what he's doing, but they're really important things uh, that he did uh, to make sure your house doesn't fall down. So sure. uh, it's the same thing for us. You know, there's a lot of little things that are going on, and you can, you know, you can help uh, a taxidermist out that way. And we just want to, like, for me again, I, uh, I we just want to make sure that um, that these things look as good as as they can look. And it's going to look like you have in your head, you know, you have an image in your head of what that mount's going to look like. We just want to make sure that we match that because as soon as you show up and it doesn't look like that, the, that image in your head, um, you know, then our, our relationship is damaged a little bit probably. Yeah. Yep. And that's, uh, like you said, a lot of times that some of that is out of your control, right? Like you got a, a cape in that stayed warm too long and all the hair slipping or, it got drugged behind the four wheeler or whatever the case is. It's like, yeah, you do the best with what you have to work with. And again, that's another reason why the better you can take care of it before it ever gets to you, the, the better outcome you can have. We had a bear that came in one time. It was a Canadian bear. And, uh, uh, I, I was getting that bear apart for the fella. And I had asked him, uh, I'm like, what happened to this bear? Because the the chest of it looked like maybe it got run over by a lawnmower or landed on a helicopter that was, uh, you know, that was going. And so I was like, what, like, what happened to this thing? Like, why does it look like this? And and the bear was injured. And he said the guy, his guy jumped on it with a hatchet and and was killing the bear with the hatchet, you know, by hitting it in the chest with the hatchet. And it looked like that, like it was <laughs> remarkable um, what that looked like. And it was like, a, you know, like if you want a challenge, you know, it's like you buy them hundred piece puzzles. It's like, that's, there, there wasn't really anything that was cut off, but it took a long time, like to figure out like, oh, he made a slice here and then this goes here and then this goes here. And eventually we were able to get it all together and salvage that thing. But Somewhere I have a picture of it. So I'm like, man, I'm taking a picture of this because this is the worst, worst yeah. skinning job that it will ever exist. And I hope I never see one worse than that. But I'll never forget that. That guy, he's like, yeah, that guy, he was still alive a little bit. He jumped right on him and hit him, started hitting him with the hatchet. I was like, holy moly. <laughs> Pro tip, don't hatchet your cape. You're going to have taxidermy. <laughs> <laughs> so some of them are obvious, right? Or you yeah. think they're obvious, but maybe they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about... uh Cape preservation. So out here in Montana, we, we have an interesting way of me getting my Cape to you, which involves putting it on a semi truck to the tannery in Michigan. We don't need to get into all the details, but what that means often is I'm putting my caped, but not flushed. You know, I, I don't take any of the extra flesh. I don't finish skin the inside of the ears or anything. I put it in the freezer. So talk to me about what's a best practice or best practices for putting a cape that's skin in the freezer to make sure that it doesn't get damaged. And, and how long can that last in the freezer? So, uh, freezer is great. Um, uh, freezer as soon as possible. And then until it can get to the tax terminus, the, uh, in the process of freezing, I like, I, I would prefer like a cape that's folded rather than like rolled up. Um, if you imagine, you know, like, uh, especially 
you know, like your mule deer, that thing's got inches of fur on it. You know, it's amazing how thick that fur is on a late season mule deer. So uh, if you roll that into, it, it looks nice, like you roll it into a jelly roll, but you put that in the freezer and the insulatory properties of that hide, I mean, it's very possible that the center of that thing might not freeze for, for days inside of there. And so uh, we want to chill it as, and freeze it as quick as we can. So when we're putting that cape in there. The best thing to do would be to kind of fold it. Think more like um, more like clothes, like how you would fold up a, a hoodie uh, or a, a sweatshirt or something like that. Fold it like that as opposed to a sleeping bag. Um, okay. A sleeping bag would not be desirable to to roll it to freeze it uh, like that. Real Once quick. it's froze, if you got it, go ahead. Real quick, is it better to, when you're folding it in that style? Is it better to put flesh on flesh or hide on hide? Uh man, I, that's a good question. Uh, I just put anytime we do them, uh, I'm doing them here, and I don't know if it's a reason, if it's better, or if it's just because of the way it is. But uh, I always put just flesh to flesh and and then just fold it. Uh, if nothing else, it's keeping things cleaner and it looks nicer when I open, <laughs> when sure. I put it in there. Yeah. I don't know if I have any scientific evidence for one way or the other, but um, but that's how we do it. Is just fold it up and and put it to uh, put it in there. But folding yeah. about as big as you can stand. So you know, like if you you think about how big a hoodie sweatshirt is folded, that's pretty good for a you know you might have two or three folds in there for. Uh, a cape that's pretty good it's more of a uh, rectangle shape and it's maybe a couple inches thick and then you want to put i'm assuming the head and the ears towards the top of that pile correct yeah head or the ears more towards the top um again is really it's going to freeze so quickly that way uh you won't really it's it's not going to be a big deal um the only concern that you have uh, that happens sometimes is if you sometimes uh, folks will um, freeze the, you know, freeze them and then the ears are in kind of a weird position. And so they're kind of like, like sticking out kind of wonky um, in the freezer, you know, your kids are throwing hot dogs and, you know, frozen hot dogs in there and there's a, you know, bunch of five pound packages of hamburger that lands on it. And, you know, if you can get everything is kind of to lay in there in a nice way. Like when I package them up here, the head's on top, the, the head is flat kind of facing me and I lay the ears down and then it's folded underneath there. So it makes a nice little package and then they're frozen that way. There's not really anything that can get broken or chipped or, or bent in the, um, you know, in the freezer when you're, if it's going to be in there for a while and you're throwing food or, you know, whatever else uh, on top of it. So that'd be a tip, I guess, to keep it kind of um, not sticking out kind of, you know, all wonky where it could get damaged. Okay. And then uh, I, I don't know if, if I missed it or if we did talk about it, but now I've got it in the freezer. I've got it not sleeping bag. I've got it folded like a hoodie. I got it flat. How long can that stay reasonably? I mean, I'm sure there's a, an upper limit, but how what's the the longest you would want one in before it got to you to finish skin and send off to the tannery yeah those are those are really hard things to answer i think um i think a lot of it depends on what your freezer is at home 
Um, you know, like a defrosting freezer is a lot rougher on, uh, you know, you, I don't know if you can even buy them. You know, I've got one that's an old one here that works pretty good. Um, that's not a defrosting one, but, um, you know, really you don't want it to be any, any longer. I, I have some, uh, you'd be, it's, we deal with it pretty frequently where a guy or uh, someone will, will get a deer and they're not sure if they want to do anything with it or they're waiting to see kind of maybe they got a trip coming up or, you know, money's an issue right now. They want to, ha they want to hang on to that cape in case they want to do something with it, but uh, they don't want to do something with it right then. Uh, usually if it's longer than, than a, a few, you know, for that, for that year, that season, what I suggest is I just ask them to let me send it, you know, just bring it in, let me send it, let's get it tanned. We'll only uh, do the price of the tan, you know, just the prepping and the tanning for it. Um, once that comes back from the tanner, you can put it back in the freezer, fold it back up and put it back in the freezer. You can either rehydrate it or not, or just put it back in the freezer. Once you put it back in the freezer and it's been tanned, um, I think the shelf life on it then is indefinite. Okay. Um, it, it's going to last. It's going to be there for, for forever. If you get it back and you, um, you, you send it out to get it tanned, you get it back and you got the cape hanging in your, like in your house like that. Uh, I think, uh, I think it's about a year. Um, probably not any more than two years for that cape to just be sitting out to the elements not being frozen there is a time frame once it's once it's tanned um there is a time frame that we got to pay attention to if you're not going to mount it right away okay so i always just suggest just put it you, we'll get it back from the tannery usually i'll rehydrate them because then we get all the measurements and stuff on them and then uh, we'll package it back up freeze it that thing is good for forever okay you know they'll be digging that up with you know with the pyramids or whatever someday <laughs> so it'll be fine so when in doubt get it in as soon as possible take it to the tannery get it tanned and then put it in the freezer don't leave it untanned in the freezer for for any extended period of time yeah not any longer I, than that I, I, to. and i you know you and i know each other well so you know i'm probably more conservative about all this stuff than than i um than maybe others are um, I worry about all that stuff a lot. You know, I just, uh, I don't, I don't like telling, uh, people no. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're pretty, like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm probably over-engineering all of that stuff. I would say like, we're really trying to make sure that stuff is kept in good shape and things are going to be as nice as, as they can be. And, you know, I might not have to be that, that, uh, you know, conservative about it but if it's something that's important to you you know like if you've got that deer you're looking to spend 700 800 dollars um on getting that thing mounted it means a lot to you why not like why not take a little bit of extra precaution to make sure that it's going to be just what you want and you don't have to hear well no we can't do this or we can't do that or we can't do it at all or or whatever i mean just that little bit of extra effort or a little bit of extra dollars uh up front would would solve all those problems yeah yep it's funny if uh you know <laughs> you spend all the money on the rifle and the hunting trip or the bow or whatever and then you don't want to spend a hundred dollars to send it out to the tannery it's 
you know, I, and I've, I've been guilty of foolish things in the past, but when you look at it in the grand scheme of things to not just get it to the tannery as soon as possible, kind of foolish. If you think there's any chance you're going to mount it. Oh yeah. And you're going to, you know, you got to look at that thing every day for the rest of your life, probably. Like, and when you look at it, if there's something the matter with it, you're just, every time you look at it, you're going to be like, Ugh. you know, like, it's just like a, just one more thing that you didn't need that day for the, <laughs> for eternity, you know? But if every time you look at that thing and you're like, man, you know, that's just a little pick me up to your day. And you remember that memory. You don't have anything that's interfering with that, you know, a bad job or something's wrong or a chunk's missing or, you know, whatever. Uh, the shoulders all ground off from the gravel road, like all of those things, like, you know, why would, you know, why wouldn't you, um, uh, do that is my thought on it. Sure. And, uh, one, one of the other things I want to talk about when it comes to prepping the Cape, and this is more of an infield thing too. I noticed, I don't usually do it, but I noticed some guys will go from like the space between the antlers and then on the midline of the back, like, you know, where a main would be on a horse. They'll split the cape all the way down, and then other guys will make a smaller, maybe a eight inch to a foot incision, skin around the head, and then remove the head through there. So I call that a, a tube cut, I think is what it's called. So maybe talk to me yeah. about what are the advantages of disadvantages of either splitting it all the way down or, or making that tube cut to pull the skull through. Well, uh, it's it's a it's interesting how like a lot of the things that happen are like how they get perpetuated over time. The when in the old days, that was the only way to do it. And I'm talking way old, older than me days. Um, that was the only way to get a high tan uh, because the tannery that was, you know, every little town had a tannery or, you know, there weren't, there weren't that many tanneries around. That um, was a tannery that was gonna tan both hides for garments and hides for taxidermy. You know, there was a time in history where there wasn't just like, like now it's a, you know, it's a multi-million dollar business. But back then it was just whoever the tannery was, he's making harnesses and coat, you know, like whatever. He's, he's just the tanner. He's not doing stuff just for taxidermists. And so the taxidermists are sending to this guy that's not a specialist for them. And we still have those tanneries around. Uh, there's still garment tanneries around the, the country that we use for different things. Back in those days, they had to split that because no tannery was going to deal with a tube skin. They didn't want to have to deal with that. They got to shave that thing. And, um, you know, they're working with cow hides or whatever. So it had to be split. Otherwise, the tanneries wouldn't take it. But, you know, I don't know when taxidermy tannery really got uh, really got uh, the technology really came about. I must've been eighties, maybe. Um, you started to have tanneries that are specific to just taxidermists and the tan is completely different. And the tannery doesn't expect to have that split. It's not a labor issue for them anymore because that's just part of the process is they know that tax, all taxidermists hate to sew. So we, we don't want to, have any more sewing than, than what we, what we have to. So, um, now you don't have to split that up the back. 
you know, some things like an antelope, you have to go a little farther down because they got their little scrawny neck and their great big bobblehead that they've got there. <laughs> and sometimes uh, like with an elk cape or something, if you got an elk on the side of a mountain, you're not going to, it's going to be really tough to, you know, unless a couple of grizzly bears stop by to help you out, you're going to have a really hard time like tubing that thing, you know, so you're going to have to go uh, up the back and, and that's, that's how it goes. But in general practice for most things, if you can access it, um, we, we're not, we don't want to have, uh, a seam up the back. Um, just like you said, Billy, um, we do like, um, uh, what we do is like a T cut. So you're going from antler to antler. And then I don't go, you know, a, a straight line from antler to antler, kind of towards the back edge of the antler where they, uh, are on his head. And then we're going to make a, a line, just like you said, like where a horse's mane would be right down the center of its back. But if I'm doing it here, I'm going to do, do it as short as I possibly can that I can get the skull out. Sometimes that's harder in the field or depending on where you're at. If you got a big set of antlers, sometimes you can't get down the neck very far because its antlers are so big, the, the, the hide piles up there and you can't get all the way right to the base of the skull. But, uh, in general, uh, you want to make that cut as, as short as possible uh, that you can. It's just dollars. Um, for a taxidermist, sewing takes time. And just like any, you know, we're artists too, but we're also, we, we've got to do it to, for a living. Um, and time is money. It's no different than the mechanic or the builder or, or whatever. So we want to have that cut as short as, as we um as we can and then the other plus side of that is is seams always have a potential to to move around and if you don't have a seam it can't move around and so when you got that seam up the back all of us have seen old mounts where it's had separated or pulled apart and you can see the stitching and stuff there's just um there's there's no reason for that and so it's just better to not have a seam there if it's possible or that's my opinion anyways yeah. And, and I kind of thought tubing just from talking to you was the preferred way. And like you said, it's not always possible, but when it is, it seems like that's the way to go. And, and if you're not familiar with doing that, um, I've done it once or twice myself now, but I, I watched a lot of videos before I attempted that task and I, and I think I did okay. But the oh, safest yeah. thing to do, what I often do in the field is I'll roll that up to the neck, like you said, till the hide starts piling up and you can't always get to the base of the skull, but you get as close as you can. And then you cut off, you know, the top part of the neck and everything, and then take it into town and, and have a guy like yourself that's qualified finish skin the face out. Yeah, that, that uh, and you know, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll say, you know, all of the, all of the stuff that we've, we've handled with you. We can't count Jake in that, but yeah. like all <laughs> of the stuff that we've handled uh, has been good, and and I love that. You know, that's what that's what we that's what I want. I want to. Um, you know, we've said it a million times, but you're just trying to make that thing be as nice as it can be. And those are all just little things that, that, uh, that help. Let's talk about form. So I know this is a highly personal thing, but do you think there are certain forms that complement certain types of racks? So for example, you got a real wide rack or a tall rack, or maybe think about like a five by four whitetail. Do you put the five point side out? away from the wall or towards the wall what give me some of your opinions on like best form selection man i don't know those are like the hard-hitting questions it's like 
Barbara Walters or something. I feel like I'm going to start crying at some point here with your, <laughs> with your questions. Um, I, um, I, I think that, that it's really personal preference. There, there are antler, you know, I know, you know, I don't get that excited about the antlers. I'm worried about that face, but I know there's guys like you that get pretty excited about the antlers. So like we're looking at those antlers and um, sometimes we'll play around with it a little bit uh, in the shop here, um, just kind of looking at which way we want to view them. And, and the truth is, I think that it's really a personal thing for whoever's going to be looking at that thing every day. But I try to give some suggestions. There are times when that forward side out is going to really be something that you want to show. But there's a lot of times where that cooler side being um, on the back, it actually shows it a little bit better depending on what it is that's that's going on. So, you know, uh, uh, we did a uh, mount for uh, a, a young man that I think it was killed in the youth season. It had like some stickers on the side of it. And so we were able to turn that where it's hanging on the wall. That one bigger sticker sticking out was it looks pretty cool to have that on the front side. If we'd have had that on the back side, you wouldn't have been able to see that sticker as well. But there's other ones where uh, it, the cooler side sometimes looks better um, on the inside. I would say probably for us, what we do is um, I like to play around with the ears a lot. And so on the day that we're doing um, that particular deer, once those antlers are on there, I'm trying, you know, instead of just sticking ears on there and calling it good, um, I'm thinking of it's kind of like on, um, uh, you know, like on the price is right. And then they would say, here is the, uh, the new toaster. And then Vanna would like kind of use her hands to kind of like show off the toaster. I, I, that's how I'm imagining like the, the ears. Like I can use those. They're not just stuck there doing nothing. Like we can use those ears to kind of enhance uh, what those antlers are shaped like. Sometimes when I'm playing with it, and I know you and I have done that a little bit, like I'll send you a picture, like, what about this? And what about this? And like, we move them around a little bit. I like this. Do you like, do you like them like this? And uh, play with those ears a little bit to just use them kind of as like a framing for the antlers. The best thing is a, a buck that's got little short ears. And um, I'm sure that they get made fun of by the, the bigger ear deer or whatever, but um <laughs> The deer have tremendous variation in the size of their ears, and not even just mule deer, but just whitetails themselves. Some whitetails have huge ears, and other ones have little stubby ears. And anytime we have one with little stubby ears, um, I always try to put them ears forward because all the guys always think that, you know, it's the width of the ears and whatever. Well, this guy's got little stubby ears, and so we'll put his ears forward. And if his antlers are, you know, anywhere near that, it makes his antlers actually look um, bigger. If he's got giant ears, man, I'm not putting those ears forward because it could be a pretty nice rack. And those ears could actually make his, his antlers look smaller. And a lot of times with those, I like to lay him back a little bit, give a little bit more um, width there. Some deer have really nicely marked ears. They got like a real nice black edge. And a lot of times I like to show that depending on what those years look like. But those are decisions that I'm making on the day that we do it. And just like you and I talked 
a lot of times it's here's a picture. What do you think? You know, I, this is what I think looks best uh, for this deer. You know, what do you think? And then, you know, sometimes the guys would be like, ah, I'd like them back a little more or off a little bit more. And then we can make some adjustments and make a, a decision on them. Yeah, and then as far as forms go, I think it has more to do with where you're going to hang it um, than, than anything. Um, we just did, got a, a mule deer done that just went home to the fellow this week, uh, this past week. And it ended up being a shoulder pedestal mount. And that, the antlers on that deer were really, really tall. And he had kind of an upright form. It was what he wanted. And uh, that thing's going to take up a lot of space on a wall, you know, like uh, to the point where it might be uh, in an eight foot ceiling. It, it might be a little lower than what you might have thought you wanted to hang that deer just because the antlers were so tall. And so I think those are I think the, the height of the wall and kind of where you're going to put it maybe has more of an impact on the the, the form as opposed to. Um, you know, like how we would arrange the the ears or something like that. Yeah, just a couple of things bounce off. Uh, you know, kind of following up on what you said. One of the things that I've done now, and and I'm probably weird, but <laughs> when you get the skull plate off, I like to hold it out in front of me against the wall and then rotate it like up, down, left to right, yeah. and then you can get an idea. Like, okay, here's what I want it to look like angle wise, and then I can send that picture to you and say, get a form that the head's going to have this kind of turn or and that's something we didn't talk about. We can talk about it in a second, but, but doing some customization of forms. And then the other thing I think that's real important is, I mean, you've, you said you've been doing this for 35 years. I don't know how many deer you do a year, 50, hundred, whatever the number is. I mean, that's, that's thousands of deer you've done. You've, and I think a taxidermist that's got some artistic ability, right? You have seen and done thousands of deer, like trust this guy's judgment, right? He, he knows what this rack is going to look like uh or what form is going to complement it the best which ear pose like yeah if you have a vision in your head follow that but if you don't get some input because th that guy's got the experience so that's just my yeah i add there no i agree i i think that that's probably uh that's probably true a lot of times what i'll tell guys you know when we first take you know i've you know we've talked about it earlier it might take a year to get it back um, some of the guys don't decide right that day. And so it's kind of like when you buy a truck. So like I bought my truck and I, I went and bought it and I was like, man, that's the most beautiful blue color I've ever seen. I've never seen that color of truck before. I like that. I'm going to be, you know, really original driving around that truck. And then literally there used to be a game I would play with my daughters when they were little. It was fine. It was count how many dad's trucks we can find. And we'd <laughs> sit there at McDonald's and we'd have a contest to see who could spot them first. And you got extra credit for a topper and a rack and all that stuff. As soon as you have that truck, it's unbelievable how many people have that same color of truck. And as soon as you're thinking about a deer mount, you start to notice them a lot more. And so a lot of times I'll just tell guys, I'll be like, hey, I don't need to know right now. Um, over the next couple months, just start paying more attention to what you like and uh, what catches your eye. And I, if you're somewhere like Cabela's or something, you see a mount that you really like, just snap a picture of that, send it to me. And um you know, there's no secret, you know, I mean, the forms are, there's only so many suppliers. And if you're a taxidermist that's been around for a while, you can, you honestly are pretty good at identifying whose forms are what. And, um, 
and you, you can you can match that exactly or, or take another one like you said and customize it and make sure that it matches it so um i i love the idea that you said where you'd kind of look at it and turn turn it because when you think about it like that there really are some like you can turn it ahead of you and there are some positions that you like better than others and i think that's well worth doing i love that idea yeah that's actually uh that buck that you did for me with the stickers i wanted something that was going to be uh, I didn't want a, a straight upright mount, which is like what this one is. I didn't want a straight upright mount because I already had one of those and I kind of had that in the center of my wall. I wanted it turned, but I also wanted the rack kind of forward facing, which th that one is not completely. It's got a little movement, but it's like, oh, well, what makes sense to have a forward facing rack and still have some turn? And it was a wall pedestal. So that's that's how I ended up deciding on that form. Oh, and I, I love I, that's one of my like I said, and, you know, take it or leave it, whether I'm blowing smoke or not. But that's been, that's one of our favorite mounts that we've done in the last couple of years. I love that mount. I loved working on it. I could not wait to show you the pictures of it yeah. and show you, you know, on that day. And it's, it's just like all the stuff we've talked about. Cape coming, came in good condition. It's uh, a beautiful deer. We got a cool pose. It's got amazing antlers with the little stickers. Um, you start putting all that together and I'm, I'm excited. Like the morning I'm going to work on that for you. I'm all excited. I'm like, man, I can't wait to do Jeremy's deer today. And that thing's going to, I mean, it's going to look amazing. And I'm really excited. Like I'm up in the morning, I'm ready. I can't wait to work on it because you know, we've, you and I worked together to come up with an idea of what that thing's going to be. And that's the best part of doing the job. Like, I love that. Yeah. Um, no, and your, your genuine excitement shows through and that's, uh, I mean, it's hard to gauge that when you're meeting someone for the first time, but I would say if uh, there's any way you can find a taxidermist to people that are listening, that's got the, the same level of passion that you do for turning out a good product. Like that's the guy, right? If it costs more, if it takes a little longer, like who cares? Like you said, you're going to look at that thing. If you're uh 20, 30, 40, even 40 years old, I mean, you're going to look at that thing for 20, 30, 40 more years. So get it done right. Yeah, no, I agree. And really, we're only nice to you for the most part because you're the, you know, potential son-in-law of a local legend here. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that's that's why you get all kinds of special treatment. <laughs> that, that helps. And uh, I only got a couple more questions for you, Chad. We're running up on uh, a time here and I want to keep you on the phone all night. But speaking of, of local legends, that's uh, my girlfriend's dad, Boyd. Part of the reason that you accepted me as a client was because you knew him and, and you were good friends with Shauna's brother, Ryan. And otherwise, I don't know if I'd be on the client list, but being that you do such good work and now that you're on the podcast, I think inevitably people are going to ask, are you accepting new clients? And so give me the answer and then why or why not right now? So the answer is no, with a capital letters, because yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'm still teaching and um, it, it's too much. It's too much to go uh, to be at school and then to come home and, and do that work. So a um, couple years from now, uh, I'll be retired. We'll be doing taxidermy full time. But even then, um, we're going to have a limit uh, to what we'll take. We'll have a, a set limit. And, and the honest truth is, is uh, we don't have very many new clients. Uh, I did taxidermy full time before I started to teach. Uh, this would have been 25 years ago almost. And... Um, I'm, we're still just doing work for the same people pretty much. You know, it's either them or their kids or, 
you know, whatever over the, the, um, the course of all this time, we've, we've been able to really assemble a nice group of clients that we enjoy working with. And, and we are definitely going to expand that as we go, but, um, it'll, it'll still have to be somewhat limited because, um, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair to a person to have them to just take, 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 um, and then tell the person it's going to be four years or three years or even two years. I would, I would lose sleep if it was two years, you know, if it takes two years to get their stuff back, like I'm going to, you know, I'm not even able to sleep. I'm going to be so worked up over it. So, you know, we're going to take what we can get done in a year, um, make sure those folks get their stuff and they have it done on just the way they want it and everybody's happy. And, and that's our business model uh, going forward. Yeah. And then uh, last two questions here. This one's a quick one. You do, I think, amazing work. I'm super thrilled and, and I feel very fortunate to be a client of yours. If people want to just check out some amazing taxidermy, where can people find you online? Uh, you do have, I believe, a website and like any social media stuff you want to mention. Yeah, so we, we do have a website. It's uh, lazy8taxidermy.com. Uh, you can check out stuff on there. Uh, same thing. We're just like, I, 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 I use that a lot. Like we're like a little craft brew place. Like, uh, um, you know, we're, we're not a big place. Um, but you don't have to be a big place to do nice stuff. And if your listeners are thinking about that, um, there's places around that have bigger shops than what we have. Um, but I'd argue that, you know, you can, you can take any of our mounts and put them next to anybody's and they'll be just as good or better. So um, just because the guy's got a smaller place, you know, um, it's like they used to say, don't, don't, judge the, don't judge the man by his clothes, judge him by his work. And it's the same, same thing. You know, don't judge a tax by the shop. Go see his work. You know, go there, look at his work, um, see um, what kind of work is being done and Maybe talk to some people, get some references, and and uh, and go from there. I think. And then the last thing, so because we're running out of time today, one thing that we didn't discuss at all is that I know you're a big upland bird hunter. I want to get you on another episode because you're a you're a huge bird hunter in Michigan, and you actually do some guided bird hunts, right? So, is there any chance we can get you back on and maybe uh, end of the year when this when your bird season winds down, and and maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, we would love that. And I, what I'd like to do is uh, if you end up home here for a little bit, we'd like to get you out, uh, get you walking around, um, see what we can see, what these dogs can do for you. But that's that's my passion. The, the two the two things that have been really constant in my life, um, you know, from when I think back is I've always loved dogs. I've always loved hunting with dogs. And so bird dogs do that for me today. Um, the other thing that I've always loved is art. Um, from the time I was little, my parents have stuff for me when I was tiny. Um, I didn't, I don't, when I was little, I didn't think it would end up like this, but the taxidermy really scratches the itch for me of the artwork. Uh, you know, you talked about the website. We have an apparel business, too. It's all original artwork uh, that we do. That's been nice, too, because at night I go in, I'm working on new designs, and it's it's forced me to do more artwork. Um, and I've been really enjoying and loving that. So just that um, 
those two things have really um, permeated my life, my uh, the whole time. And I feel very blessed that I'm able to do both of those still. You know, I just turned 50 this year. So uh, I feel very lucky that I get to do those things still. Yeah, well, I hope you live to 100. I got a lot of hunting left and hopefully a lot more taxidermy coming your way. <laughs> well, I hope you keep shooting stuff because my kids got to go to school. So <laughs> that's right. And uh, I'm going to do it. This will be an audio only two version. This is obviously we're doing video right now. But for people that heard Chad mention his website, it's lazy, the number eight, not not the spelled out. So lazy, the the number eight dot com. And then I think your Instagram is uh, lazy eight, but the, the I is the number one, correct? something like that. um well i'm gonna be honest with you my daughter's helped me with the instagram <laughs> so i got some stuff that i'm learning i will tell you uh we have enough uh traffic through there that if you just type in lazy eight uh outfitters or lazy eight tax into google it comes right up it doesn't matter whether you spell it with an eight or a number so either Perfect. way it's pretty easy to find Perfect. Well, Chad, I uh, can't thank you enough for your time tonight. Ton of great tips. And I think, like you said, that'll be good for guys that are getting their taxidermy in um, for the first time, even experienced people, maybe learn something and hopefully save some taxidermists processing this work. A lot of headaches on, on uh, hatcheted capes and, and capes that have been out in the sun and in the heat for too long. Oh, I agree. I can't wait this year for February to come and all the Valentines that are going to be coming my <laughs> way from all the other taxidermists across the country. They're going to be so happy. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, thanks again, Chad. Thank you.